1: Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And a few weeks ago, we did an episode on Bessie Coleman, who was the first African-American woman in the world to earn a pilot's license. And after that, requests for episodes about other female aviators just started to pour in from listeners. One of the subjects that really caught my eye was, of course, today's subject, Beryl Markham, who made a historic solo flight across the North Atlantic Ocean in 1936 from England
3: to Canada. So that, of course, made her the first woman to have flown across the Atlantic from east to west, and the first person of either gender to have made this trip taking off from England. Of course, we all know Markham wasn't the only lady to have crossed the Atlantic, though. Even if you know very little about aviation, you probably know that Amelia Earhart, who's been in the news again pretty recently because of the renewed effort to find the wreckage of her plane, became the first female aviator to traverse the Atlantic solo in 1932.
2: But Earhart, of course, was crossing the ocean in the opposite direction, from west to east. And I was interested to find while researching Markham how sources like to point out how she crossed the Atlantic, quote, the hard way. Apparently, crossing from east to west is much more difficult than the other way around because of the powerful headwinds that you have to fly against. In the Northern Hemisphere, the jet stream actually travels from east to west. So this is quite a feat that Markham accomplished.
3: Yeah, and still, much like Coleman, there are a lot of people who don't know much about Barrow Markham, don't know much about who she was. So we're going to be talking about her historic flight, but also some of her other accomplishments, because Markham's story doesn't begin and end with flying, to say the least. There's some... Horse racing, riding, plenty of controversy, as well as a very eerie prophecy that she received in her youth. And you know, we love, we love it when our podcast subjects have these strange prophecies. Beryl's was, You will always be successful but you will never be happy. So we're going to look
2: into that and see if it comes true, how it pans out for her. But first, we have to tell you a little bit about Beryl's unusual upbringing, because it really sheds a lot of light on her unique character and why she did a lot of things that she did later. I know that's true of a lot of people, but I think it's especially true in her case. She was born Beryl Clutterbuck in Leicester, England, on October 26, 1902. Her parents were Charles and Clara Clutterbuck. Charles was a former Army officer who'd actually been asked to resign his commission, probably because of debts. He'd gone into the Army as a gentleman cadet, but since his father had died after remarrying... And having several more children, he didn't come away with, uh, Charles that is, didn't come away with as much of an inheritance as he might have otherwise. He was making a meager living for himself training horses for fox hunting when Beryl was born. Both he and his wife really loved horses and they, and he in particular had a great talent for training them.
3: So when Beryl was only about two or three years old, Charles Clutterbuck moved his family to East Africa, or specifically to Kenya. And Kenya had come under British control in the late 1800s, and people generally thought of it as almost another India. And Charles and other kind of people like him were drawn there by the potential to purchase really inexpensive land and make a lot of money farming there. And he hoped that this move for his family would ultimately make him very wealthy. So Charles ended up setting up a
2: farm as well as timber meals at Enduro, about 80 miles north of Nairobi, Kenya. And once things got going, he did see some success with these ventures family life, however, wasn't working out quite the same way. Richard, Beryl's elder brother, had always been sort of sickly and he got even worse when he moved to Africa. So he was sent back to live in England in September of 1906. Clara, Beryl's mother, followed three months later but she went for very different reasons. In England, she'd been really social enjoying going to parties a lot and so forth and there just wasn't very much society at all to be had in their new home. There was increasingly more stuff as time went on, but still really not enough to satisfy her. Also, living standards were way below what they were used to back in England. When they first arrived, for example, they had to live in mud huts rather than real houses.
3: So there may have been some other reasons, too, just besides the standard of living. Many also suspect that Beryl's mother moved because of a romantic interest in Major Henry or Harry Kirkpatrick. But either way, it's generally accepted that Beryl never really forgave her mother for this abandonment. So Beryl was left in Africa with her father and ended up being a pretty undisciplined or she had an undisciplined upbringing. Um, She was watched over by African house servants and her childhood playmates were the kids of Africans who worked on the farm, you know, a very different upbringing from what she probably would have had back in England. But she learned a lot too. She learned several African languages and in a lot of ways she grew up almost more African than European in her way of thinking.
2: From the beginning, she was known to be really full of life and was always looking for adventure. She learned, for example, how to hunt wild game with a spear and with a bow and arrow when she was just a kid. One thing that those who knew her tend to reiterate is how she seemed to have no fear. In her Beryl Markham biography, Straight Until Morning, author Mary Lovell relates a story of how Beryl and her cousin once, as kids, killed a black mamba, which was one of the most poisonous snakes in Africa with sticks, and then they just paraded the snake around, the dead (laughs) snake around on poles. Her other cousin said of her, quote, she was absolutely wild and would try anything, no matter how
3: dangerous it was. I looked up the black mamba, too, to see what it looked like. Pretty scary looking, right? Very scary looking. And in addition to being really venomous, they're supposedly very, very fast which makes (laughs) this little incident of attacking one with sticks even scarier. But even though Beryl was so bright and so energetic and so brave, she really didn't get a lot of formal education. And it was through her contact with other expatriate upper-class Europeans in the area that she learned the European manners and what was, um, you know, learned enough to be able to get along in European social circles later in her life. She also learned to read and write from a neighbor, Mrs. Lidster, when she was eight years old. She didn't have much education beyond that, though, despite having a governess. Yeah, that's because the
2: governess didn't quite work out the way perhaps her father had planned. He hired Mrs. Orchardson to teach Beryl probably by about 1910 or so. But Beryl really did not like her and would do whatever she could to keep from being around her. By this time, the farm had a real house made of cedar. But Beryl didn't want to live under the same roof as Mrs. Orchardson. So she kept living in her own mud hut a little distance away from the house. She stayed out there with her animal friends, who were her pet dog. And other pets that she had. And her feelings here probably stemmed from jealousy looking back on it. Mrs. Orchardson and Beryl's father, it turned out later that they were having an affair. So, and we'll talk a little bit about Beryl's relationships with her father in a second. So, you'll see how this could have aroused those feelings in her.
3: Yeah. So like other kids in the area, though, Beryl was eventually sent to school in Nairobi in 1915 or so. But she was expelled after only two and a half years, probably because she was such a troublemaker. And um she was going through a lot, though, at this time. She found out that her parents were divorcing, her mother remarried. Uh, and she also found out that her father intended to remarry. Through everything though, even the stuff going on with Mrs. Orchardson and her father, and even though he worked constantly and wasn't really around very much, Beryl did remain very devoted to her father. She never really stopped loving and idolizing him. And once said, quote, I admire my father for the way he raised me. People go around kissing and fussing over their children. I didn't get anything like that. I had to look after myself, and then I used to go off and read
0: by myself." and think by myself. Funnily enough, it made me.
5: Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: One thing her father definitely passed on to Beryl was his love for horses and his talent for working with them. Horse racing as a sport was a really popular social activity with the colonists in Africa. And, of course, Charles Clutterbuck became a really big part of that. He had a stable at the farm, and he kept and trained horses, both his own and others, And he'd import horses to raise the quality of the animals available in the area. So he'd import these great stallions, for example, and breed them with mares that were in Africa already and um, try to create great racehorses out of that. From a young age, Beryl helped with the grooming and eventually took on the job of delivering foals. She also had really superb riding skills, and this uncanny knack for working with the most difficult wild horses. I mean, horses that would put other people in the hospital, she would somehow work with and be able to ride. Exactly.
3: So, there you go. But tomboyish, as she seemed... By the time Beryl was about 16, she really did care a lot about her appearance. She was considered very beautiful, almost six feet tall. She had blue eyes and blonde hair. And according to a story by Gavin Mortimer in The Telegraph, a contemporary once described her as, quote, a magnificent creature, very feline. It was like watching a beautiful golden lioness when she walked across the room. Kind of an overblown description. Yeah, but but I guess maybe one that's Africa appropriate. Yeah, like and the it, lion comparison. It does give you kind of a picture of, of her looks. But maybe that's why, you know, because of those looks that when things started to go south for her dad financially, she it it didn't really take very long for rumors to start surrounding Beryl's own next step.
2: Around 1918 or 1919, when Charles Clutterbuck was at the height of his racing successes, he was winning a lot of races, his horses were doing really well, and he was a big name as a trainer in the area. Drought hit his crops pretty hard, and he was unable to meet the government contracts that he'd negotiated. So he had to get help from several people to meet these contracts, and former Scottish rugby player, who was then a neighbor of the Clutterbucks, Alexander Jock Purvis, was one of them. According to Lovell's book... This is only a rumor, but there was a story going around that Purvis was one of Charles's biggest creditors. And he struck up a deal that he would forgive Charles's debt if Charles would let him marry
3: Beryl. Hmm, kind of an unscrupulous sounding deal, but regardless of whether this is true, Beryl did become engaged to Jock Purvis and married him when she was only about 16 or 17 years old. He was about twice her age at the time. They honeymooned together in India. And then in the meantime, Beryl's brother Richard came back to live with her father and started riding for him again. So it seemed kind of like maybe the family was coming back together almost. It didn't last very long, though. Charles was still having a lot of financial problems. Problems, and by November 1920, he announced he was going to sell everything, including all of the horses pack out to Peru, where he accepted a position as a trainer. But before he left, he talked to Beryl about her maybe coming becoming a trainer herself. And soon after that, she did become the first woman in Africa, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, to obtain a racehorse trainer's license and started out training just a few horses out of her old stables, which her husband by that point owned. And she really had some success early on, at least. Yeah, one of her horses
2: even placed second in the East African Derby when she was only 19 years old. But problems on the home front soon kind of put the brakes on her training career. She and Purvis were fighting a lot. Sometimes things even got physical between them. Part of it was probably just her general unhappiness that caused some of this tension at home. Uh, Her beloved father, as we mentioned, had moved. And not long after that, her brother Richard, who continued to be sickly after he moved to Africa, he passed away. Another source of tension between Purvis and Beryl, though, was probably Beryl's adulterous ways. She had a lot of lovers, and she never really saw marriage as an obstacle to that. According to Lovell, the story was that every time Beryl would take on another lover, Purvis would nail a six-inch nail into the post by their front door, and everybody in the area, all their friends, kind of knew what that stood for.
3: Oh, goodness. So... Eventually, Beryl went ahead and left Purvis entirely. She had no money and had to rely on friends like Karen Blixen, who's the author of Out of Africa. And apparently, Beryl did live with Blixen for a while after leaving Purvis. She, uh, Blixen was a few years older than Beryl, but the two of them really had some sort of close bond. And eventually, after Purvis and Beryl divorced, she went back to training horses again, living sometimes in huts or tents, really almost returning to part of her childhood, it seemed.
2: Yeah, she didn't have a lot of money and didn't really seem that worried about it. She was doing what she wanted to do, training horses. But in 1927, she did marry again and this time it was to English aristocrat Mansfield Markham, so maybe she did care about money a little bit. The two of them had a son, Gervais, in England in 1929, but Beryl still couldn't shake her old ways and so this marriage didn't work out much better than her first. She continued to have affairs, one very scandalous one, for example, that took place right around the birth of her son. I think before she had her son, while she was pregnant, and kind of right after she had him, she was having an affair with Prince Henry, Duke of Gloucester. Kind of the was,
3: crucial time. <laughs> yes,
2: it's kind of, it seems like an interesting time to choose to have an affair, but she did with Prince Henry, who was third in line with for the throne. The queen found out about it, though, and eventually gave Beryl an annuity of 15,000 pounds to make her go away. And Beryl continued to
3: receive this throughout her life. So after that big scandal with the prince, Beryl returned to Africa to focus on horses again. But in the fall of 1929, she discovered something else that she liked a lot, which was, of course, flying. You know, we had to get to it sooner or later. So she went up for the first time with Dennis Finch Hatton, who was a longtime lover of Beryl's dear friend, Karen Blixen, who we just mentioned. Uh, he was at the controls. And at this time, Blixen and Hatton's relationship was coming to an end. But still, Blixen probably wasn't that happy about her friend Beryl falling in love with her longtime boyfriend. Sort of a hero-worshipping thing probably went on between Beryl and Hatton, but they did become lovers for a short time.
2: Yeah, because Beryl was probably just a kid when she met Hatton through Blixen. So, he, you know, that's where the hero-worship thing came from. But a lot of people actually suspect that she might have been the reason that Blixen and Hatton Broke up, but it's more likely, as you mentioned, that they probably were already on their way to breaking up at least by the time Beryl and he started things up. So she immediately loved flying and she wanted to learn to do it herself, so she started taking flying lessons from a professional pilot, Tom Campbell Black, who helped establish Kenya's first commercial air service. And flying in East Africa, though, was no easy proposition, whether you were a man or a woman. According to Jacqueline McLean's book, Women with Wings, maps were poor. Runways were basically just these dirt tracks that were full of holes, and sometimes there would be wild animals on them when you were trying to land or something. But because the terrain was so rough for automobiles, too, and there were few roads, people there really welcomed
3: planes as a potential mode of transportation for them. So it was a useful skill for her to to learn. But soon after she started learning, Beryl got a very hard lesson in just how dangerous flying in East Africa could be, because on May 14, 1931, Hatton was killed while taking off in his plane in southeastern Kenya. Beryl was really devastated by this, but the event seemed to make her even more determined to go on and become a pilot herself. And Only two months after Hatton's death, she earned her pilot's license and then started studying to earn her B license, which would allow her to become a commercial pilot, you know, to capitalize on all these people who want to get to areas that were difficult to reach. And on September 18th, 1933, she earned that B license and became Kenya's first female commercial pilot.
2: When she earned her license, Beryl bought her first plane and she started taking on jobs. So we'll just kind of give you an example of some of the jobs that she took. She delivered mail and supplies to uh, miners in East African gold mines. And these were extremely difficult flights. She said of them, quote, the airstrips were pocket handkerchief size and fo- forced landing anywhere on route meant almost certain death from thirst. She also provided air taxi service to settlers in remote areas, and she delivered medical supplies in emergencies and flew accident victims or very sick people to hospitals. She also scouted game for safari hunters. That was something that came up a little later on. They realized that she could, and other pilots could, maybe spot things like elephant herds, for example, and then direct hunting parties to their location.
3: In the meantime, Beryl also had a new boyfriend. She had struck up a full-blown relationship with Tom Black, and according to Lovell's book, both Hatton and Black were really the two loves of Beryl's life. The only two men that she kind of had the same amount of respect for, maybe as her father Um, black might have also been the only man she was ever faithful to but together black and Beryl would talk a lot about flying they had that real strong bond in common and they talk about going after various flying challenges she did a few of the smaller challenges for instance she made the six thousand five hundred mile trip from Kenya to England six times four of them solo, which was, of course, also over very dangerous terrain. And then Black did a pretty major challenge, too. He went from London to Melbourne uh, in a race in 1934 and won the thing. But Beryl's joy on his behalf, him winning this race, didn't last very long because after the race, she found out in a newspaper that he'd become engaged to a British actress named Miss Florence Desmond. Her reaction, though, was not one of of anger, or at least Um, not for long she decided she wanted to win him back so she made one of her flights to England in early 1936 and stayed there for a little while
2: And it was while she was in London at a dinner party that she got the inspiration she needed to take on her biggest flying challenge yet. She'd been telling an acquaintance, John Carberry, about a wild goal of hers to be the first woman to fly the Atlantic from east to west and to be the first to take off from England. By this time, Earhart had her achievement under her belt and Scotsman Jim Mollison had flown the Atlantic from east to west, but he'd started from Ireland, which was a shorter route. Probably just to test how serious she was. We're not really sure what was behind it, but Carberry told her that if she'd fly nonstop from England to New York, he'd let her use his brand new Vega-Gull monoplane, which was then under construction. And she, of course, accepted this challenge right away the plane, which would be named the messenger, wouldn't be ready until August. And so Beryl used this time in the interim to train, both physically and mentally, studying maps and routes and plans of past crossings, both successful and otherwise. And Jim Mollison even helped her plan her trip.
3: So by September fourth, 1936, Beryl was ready to start the trip. And there was, of course, as you can imagine, a lot of hype surrounding what she was about to do. And the press made a big deal about her being, quote, a society lady, which is a funny way to to categorize her if you consider her upbringing in mud huts and all of that. Um, Beryl herself wrote a letter that was published in a newspaper the day after she left, and it said, quote, I fail to see what an accident of birth has to do with flying the ocean. So, bam, there you go. But the messenger was ready by the time um, Beryl was engaged in this (laughs) defense of her upbringing, and it was specially designed to fly very long, Long distances without stopping. The body was longer and wider than standard planes, and it was custom fitted with extra fuel tanks. There were two tanks in the wings, two in the center, and two more in the cabin. So, with all of this, it had the capacity to fly around 3,800 miles without stopping to refueling. Perfect for record breaking. However, not so perfect for taking off.
2: So Beryl's initial challenge was just getting off the ground with all of that fuel in her plane. The runway in Abingdon, which is where she took off, was a mile long. And Beryl really wasn't sure at first if she was going to be able to take off in that distance. And if she did, if she'd be able to get the heavy plane over the tree line after that. She did manage to get off the ground and in only 600 yards. And was off on her journey. Once she was in the air, though, she had problems right from the start. First, she lost her chart of the Atlantic. A gust of wind blew it right out of her hands and out of the cockpit window. I'd be
3: turning the plane around at that I point. know, I would
2: be too. I imagine, I mean, it's already hard enough for us in this day and age to think about doing something like this without GPS, mm-hmm. but to think the one little map
3: that you have is suddenly gone right away. away. Well, the conditions weren't good either. Another thing that made it a very difficult trip, there was low visibility. That was an issue pretty much the entire time because the weather was very bad. There were clouds, driving rain, a 30-mile headwind, and Beryl basically flew blind for 19 hours and had to rely on the plane's instruments to guide her. The messenger didn't have a radio despite being so state-of-the-art with fuel tanks. It didn't have a radio, so she had no way to contact anybody if she got into trouble.
2: The worst parts, though, as she recalled them, were the loneliness and the fatigue. All she had to eat were some coffee and some nuts. A particular low point that she remembered is when she went to grab her last flask of coffee, and the plane suddenly lurched, and then the coffee spilled everywhere, and she was just devastated in that moment. She said it was her lowest point, and it was the closest that she came to tears. Losing her coffee wasn't the worst thing that could have happened, though. After that, later on in the trip, something really scary happened. Her engine started to cough and die because a fuel tank ran out and the other one didn't kick in right away. So her plane actually dropped to below 300 feet before that new tank kicked in and reached the engine.
3: Well, and also that fuel tank was her last one. And uh, the gauge said that it would last another 11 hours. But only nine hours later, the engine started to fail again. And she couldn't figure out what was going on because she should have had more than enough fuel to reach New York City, and things were looking pretty dire. She later wrote, quote, I watched that tank getting emptier and emptier and still saw nothing but sea and clouds and mist. So in these moments, you know, preparing for a crash into the ocean, she took a couple swigs from her flask of brandy and then, Just as it seemed like the plane was going to come down in the water, she saw land, which was the coast of Nova Scotia, and later said, I've never seen land so beautiful. She picked a grassy spot and was able to bring the plane down onto it. It wasn't just picture perfect, though. She misjudged the landing spot. What she thought was grassy ground was actually a moss-covered bog, so it was a rough landing. When she brought the plane down, it tipped up on its nose, and she hit the windshield and got a huge gash on her forehead but overall she was very lucky just that gash and some bruising she was able to walk away
2: safe she had to trudge for three miles though through waist-high mud until she came across two fishermen who took her to a farmhouse and got her medical attention she greeted them by saying quote i'm mrs markham i've just flown from england Beryl was initially afraid after this point. I mean, she was probably relieved just to be alive, but she was afraid and sad that she'd failed. She didn't make it to New York, and she was really upset about that. She couldn't figure out why. She kept trying to evaluate, you know, why didn't I have enough fuel? It turned out later, we should mention that, uh, or at least uh, technicians assume that what happened was that her fuel tank froze. And that's Um, why the rest of the fuel didn't
3: make it to the engine. And maybe why it was slow transitioning between the tanks.
0: Exactly.
5: About six million.
1: Approximately eleven million dollars.
5: Nearly ten million dollars was all gone.
1: Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry.
4: She would probably have sex
1: with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So she soon learned, though, that people were applauding her accomplishment. Nobody else was disappointed (laughs) that she didn't make it to New York. People were glad that she was alive and they thought that she had done something great. She was a heroine. And so she was suddenly a star in America and across the pond. Aviator newspapers dubbed her, quote, the beautiful lady in blue. A U.S. Coast Guard plane brought her to New York where she was celebrated and she even rode in a motorcade throughout the city. Lots of cool folks gave her kudos in various publications. Earhart said... I am delighted beyond words that Mrs. Markham should have succeeded in her exploit and has conquered the Atlantic. It was a great flight.
3: It's a pretty nice thing to say from a fellow aviator. So Tom Black also praised her. He said, amazing. I thought she'd do it, but the weather on what is always a tough crossing seemed appallingly bad. Um, Beryl might have been hopeful at this point that her great feat had ha- also done the double task of winning Black back to her, but before she even set sail for England, she got the terrible news that Black had been killed in a freak accident. Another plane had landed on top of his, and she was of course entirely devastated by this. She lived in England for the next few years, but she didn't really take up flying again. I was sort of surprised by that, that after something like this, she put it aside for for a bit. She moved to California in 1939 and apparently there were plans for the story of her transatlantic flight to be made into a movie, but this never really panned out. Again, like Bessie Coleman, there are two great movies now that could be made about these women.
2: She did, however, get an offer to write about her experiences and she produced the book West with the Night which was published in 1942. In 1942, she also officially divorced Mansfield-Markham, finally. They hadn't lived together for years, and married her third husband, Ralph Schumacher a writer and a journalist who helped her write her book. And the book was well received at first, but eventually sales declined and people just sort of forgot about it. I mean, this was during World War II too, so there were more important things going on perhaps uh, for people to focus on. But like her other relationships, Beryl's marriage to Schumacher eventually ended Unhappily, And she returned to Kenya in 1950.
3: So for the last 30 some odd years of Beryl's life, she returned to her first profession and her true childhood love, which was horse racing. She became one of the most successful trainers in Kenya, winning the Top Trainers Award five times and the Kenya Derby six times and continued to train horses into the early 80s. Then in 1982, she became a well-known personality again for a different reason, kind of re from the past almost.
2: Yeah, a man named George Gudekunst, who was a friend of Ernest Hemingway's son, Jack Hemingway, had read through Ernest's correspondence and found a letter to his editor in which Hemingway had called Beryl's book, West with the Night, a, quote, bloody wonderful book. Hemingway, just as an aside, a side note to this, Hemingway had met Beryl in their youth, uh, I think in the 1930s, late 1920s and he it apparently hit on her but she wasn't into it. He was one of the few people she she actually rebuffed, which was... Kind of a
3: a blow to Hemingway's reputation. (laughs)
2: Absolutely, it was kind of, well, sort of unusual for both of them but um, that's just a little side note there. But this man, he got a publisher to reissue the book and it became a huge success. It made six figures through its sales, appeared on bestseller lists again and inspired a tv documentary about beryl's life
3: so she did make some money got a little notoriety again toward the end of her life but she was still very lonely and that brings us back to that prediction the clairvoyant had made when she was only 16 that you will always be successful but you will never be happy um i don't know how how much that's true I know. I mean, uh, happiness is such a hard thing to define anyway. You can't judge anyway. someone else's happiness. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, sometimes people just say they're happy because it sounds good. And I mean, I think she definitely had fleeting moments of success and of happiness. But who can really say if? the sum of all of that equals a happy life or not. So Beryl
3: died in 1986 at the age of 84, but the controversy did not end with her death. Some people don't believe that she actually wrote West with the Night. They think that her third husband, Raul Schumacher, wrote it. Errol Trzbinski wrote a biography about Beryl in the 1990s that made exactly this claim. Yeah, some possible evidence that might support this idea that she didn't write it. Uh, For
2: example, Friends recall them saying that they were writing it together, but some who knew Beryl say that they always assumed that she hadn't written it because she was basically literate or didn't like to read or write, which, I don't know, from what we've seen uh, through our research, she did actually like to read when she was younger, so I'm not really sure if that... She wasn't exactly literate, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Kind of so an overstatement. <laughs> that's a little bit of an overstatement. Another example that people give is that it contains literary references that people think had to have come from Schumacher, and uh, conversely, errors in descriptions about flying that Beryl would have never made. Also, much of the original manuscript was in Raoul's handwriting.
3: Mary Lovell, though, whose bio we mentioned earlier, spent a time with Beryl before her death and seemed absolutely convinced that she was the sole author of this book. Either way, though, it sounds like an interesting read. It does. I I haven't picked that up. I did
2: read Lovell's book Straight On Till Morning, which was, I mean, it's really hard to put down. Um, It's written kind of interestingly, but it is... uh, it's one of the better biographies I've read recently, which is saying a lot because I read a lot of biographies nowadays. Right. But she was really, I, th- I guess I say why I think it's in- its written in an interesting way is because you can tell the affection almost that Lovell has for Beryl throughout mm-hmm. that book. And she did spend six weeks with her before um, before writing this book and shortly before Beryl's death. So Maybe a
3: little bit like Mrs. Gaskell's Charlotte Bronte biography, you know, a biography that's yeah. clearly influenced by knowing the person personally, which would have to have, you know, that would certainly make you take a different take on on writing about somebody's life.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Lovell says in her introduction to the book that it was Beryl's influence that actually kind of gave her the courage to quit her day job and become a full-time writer. So she was an inspiration to her in that way. And and I would encourage people, even if you don't have time to read the full book, to read the introduction, because it is kind of moving in that way. And you learn a lot about Beryl's personality, especially as an older woman from that. And I thought I would share the inspiring quote that Beryl gave to Lovell. She said to her, when she heard about Level struggles with wanting to give up her job and debating about becoming a full-time writer. Her advice was, never look back. You've got to keep looking forward. Something will always happen if you try to make it happen. So I think that's a nice note to end on with Beryl's story.
3: Well, and a nice quote from an aviator too, where you're not going to turn around just because your chart blows <laughs> You're going to keep going straight on to Nova Scotia.
2: Very true. So, that was a listener request. If you guys have any more requests of aviators, we might do maybe one or two more episodes along these lines and maybe make a little mini-series out of it. Feel free to write us and let us know what your suggestions are. We're at historypodcast.discovery.com or you can look us up on Facebook. Book,
3: and we're on Twitter at Miston History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about another subject we mentioned on today's podcast, Amelia Earhart, we do have an article called "Why Can't We Solve the Amelia Earhart Mystery?" Maybe an article that might need an update one of these days. Yeah, it might not be relevant. <laughs> we'll see it on our editorial calendar soon, probably. That's yep. how we'll know the story is really going forward. So, if you want to check that out, search for Amelia Earhart on our homepage. It's www.howstuffworks.com
1: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Stuff Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.